Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Skylines is brought to you by 100 Resilient Cities. Pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation, 100 Resilient Cities is helping cities around the world become more resilient to the physical, social, and economic challenges of the 21st century. You can find out more at 100resilientcities.org. Hello and welcome to Skylines, the City Metric Podcast. I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And this week we're talking about rising sea levels. When the uh, tide is high and it rains, we flood in the low-lying areas. We, we, we have to, 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 to strengthen certain parts of the levees and we also have to, for example, upgrade the storm surge barrier. So, okay, here's a slightly terrifying statistic for you. The Thames Barrier, which protects London from flooding, was built in 1982. By February 2014, it had been raised 150 times. 28 of them were in the 10 weeks previous to that, which is like, you know, one in five of every time they'd had to raise it to stop London flooding. It happened in like a 10-week period in 2014. So... Basically, we're all going to die, is the, is the lesson here. To, kind of, to, to talk about exactly how we're all going to die from, from climate change, we're joined this week by our colleague India Bork, who's the office expert on such things. Hello. Hello. So, rising sea levels are... I mean, this is, this is a real problem, right? This isn't just one of these sort of things that everyone gets a bit hysterical about that isn't actually going to happen. This is one of the real ones, right? <laughs> Very much so. It's, these are trends... All the way around the world. I mean, if you look at the stats on the Arctic, that's had its biggest ever melt that for the last 10 years have each been on the top 10 melts of all time. So it's just a very clear trend towards sea levels going up. And what the, sorry, when you say melt, what does that actually look like? Is, that, is, is this like ice melting mm. and not coming back, basically? It comes back and it freezes, some of it freezes again, but it gets, it's getting substantially smaller and more of it melts every time. Every time the Arctic refreezes in the winter, it's thinner and shallower, which makes it easier to melt the next year. So tell us a bit more about the Thames Barrier. Those of us living in London, how worried should we be? So the Thames Barrier does an amazing job of allowing us to control the water levels in London. There is projections that it could be exceeded as sea levels rise, 
and that's going to apply to the rest of the UK as well. There's actually a suggestion that by the 2080s, 5 million people and up to 1,800 schools could be at a flood risk. And that's a combination of rain, but also sea level rise. So there's a massive infrastructure issues to be addressed in all kinds of places, not just London. And I'm guessing this is primarily a problem down in the southwest? Big in the southwest, but then we had the, uh, the floods up in Cumbria as well. If you look at there's a really handy map on the NASA website, and they also, I think they used a version of it in the Rio opening ceremony, where you saw the sea levels as a kind of red blood almost like oozing into the land oh lovely and um, this map shows that it's going to happen yeah along the south coast but then also all right up around like Hull and that estuary as well one of the things that I think it's we, we find it difficult as a species to get our head around this because you sort of imagine rising sea levels you imagine like you know the water literally rising everywhere and you know suddenly half the country is underwater but it doesn't actually seem to to work like that it seems to be more a thing about sort of greater incidents of of flooding perhaps in places you don't necessarily expect and kind of comes and goes but maybe it comes with with increasing frequency i mean is that is is that a thing <laughs> i think the main problem obviously flooding is a problem but it's almost a conceptual thing of it's going to happen very, very slowly. So you're going to get superstorms like Superstorm Sandy in New York that make world headlines and cause massive problems for everyone who lives there. And, and, you know, they are doing good things to try and respond to that and prepare for the next one now. But it's not like the day after tomorrow, a film scenario where it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse in a dramatically short space of time. These changes, the sea level rise, which could be up to... I think they're projecting like two metres, one to seven metres by 2050 around the world. So that's a huge, huge amount. And even if it happens incrementally, eventually we're going to have to face it. People already are. So there's kind of two problems. There's the plausible deniability of if mm. it's not all happening mm. at once, you can say it's not climate change. And the other thing is that it's it's unexpected. Mm. And Sandy's a great example because you suddenly have, because cities are now so dense, if something mm. suddenly hits a city, you're kind of screwed in terms of being able to properly prepare right yeah there's a third problem as well that i would add to the uh, the, the denial <laughs> the, the list of bad <laughs> problems. problems is that rising sea levels are due to warming temperatures due to climate change widely recognized and that it has largely been caused by developed countries first and the effects are being felt first mostly in in the developing countries in developing cities Dhaka cities in Vietnam they're already having to introduce massive flood prevention flood warming programs or kind of responses and actually in terms of carbon emissions they've contributed something like I think Bangladesh has contributed 0.04 um, cents of its kind of emissions per capita compared to the UK which is 7.1 and yet they're the ones already having to tackle this. And this is why Black Lives Matter recently had the runway protest at Heathrow, right? It was kind of the people who cause climate change, not the same people who are impacted by climate change. The figures in Bangladesh are terrifying just because there's like, how many Bangladeshis are there? It's like 200 million or it's it's an incredibly densely populated country and they all basically live in a river delta. Mm. And it's, you know, there's that... um, Actually, if we still had a map of the week, we could do this one. We don't have a map of the week anymore. But there's a, a map we published ages ago which showed you know the same number of people live in the red area as in the blue area. And the red area is something like a third of the land area of planet Earth, and the blue area is Bangladesh and chunks of India. Where should we be moving to then? I don't know. Do you know any hills? <laughs> okay. 
you know, what are the top five cities for <laughs> escaping rising sea levels? Well, actually, one of the problems we've got is that a significant proportion of the world population, it's like 60% of the world's population or something, who lives, lives within 50 miles of the sea. It's a really high proportion. Mm. And if you kind of look at where the world's megacities are, the ones that are over 10 million, the vast majority of them are on are either on a coast or on a river quite near the coast. So, like, London isn't a coastal city, but it's only 30 mm. miles from the river. Mm. New York is coastal, Rio is coastal, um, Mumbai, Calcutta, Tokyo, Hong Kong, all these places are, are literally next to the mm. sea. And there's only a few that are well inland. It's like Moscow and Kinshasa and Paris. Mm. But generally speaking, the world's biggest cities are right next to bits of ocean that are at one point going to be a lot closer to yeah. them. What I find really weird is that... The UK especially, I mean, probably we're one of the countries where, per person, we're closest to the sea. And, like, everyone is really close to the sea. We're an island. Um, and yet, I don't really feel like anyone is that worried about being flooded by the coast. Maybe people who live there. I mean, where I'm from in Devon, just a 10-minute drive from my house, there's a stretch of road that has to be rebuilt almost every year because it gets washed away in a storm. And yet, you know, you kind of get used to this, you know, it's not a direct threat to your life or livelihood. That's, that feels very odd, and it also feels like a bit of a privilege that maybe this discourse about rising sea levels, it's all very distant. It feels very scientific. You, you know, you look at these graphs and maps, and it feels very far away. And I wonder if that's something to do with the way we're reporting it. Maybe we're not seeing enough of the kind of the human impact stories. The stories like in Bangladesh, where they've started growing different types of rice so that it can be grown in salt water or building different kinds of homes like you know I don't know there seems to be a bit of a disconnect happening and also in the way flood responses are being planned like you look at something where like the Netherlands where they're building these you know or in the 90s they built this huge wall again it feels a bit distant doesn't feel close to people's daily lives there's probably a nice poetry in that all of these coastal cities that were built because the sea allowed trade routes Mm. are going to be washed away by the sea eventually yeah there's a poetic justice to the human it's, hubris isn't there you're looking quite pleased about the end of the world there. <laughs> i'm the pa genuinely <laughs> people about the fact we're going to drown i study literature i just kind of on a, <laughs> on a narrative basis yeah. it's an important point in, in a microcosm of that this stretch of road maybe some people have visited it um slapped in sands it's called it's got a lee behind it so you have the beach and a small a road and then the other side of it is a natural water lake and that was formed by uh, natural processes of erosion and sedimentation where a spit kind of joined up at either end. So it's celebrated, it's in all the geography textbooks, it's like a unique natural environment where you get all these different kinds of wildlife. So there's this constant debate on a very micro level about should they be rebuilding the barrier every year? If it was created by nature, shouldn't you just let nature take its course? And I feel quite strongly that, you know, humans, we have such an interdependent relationship with nature. You can't you say when it suits your convenience oh that's just nature taking its course we, we've interfered on every possible level <laughs> with natural processes like you have to you're involved <laughs> and also things like i always think of um brunel's railway line going down into cornwall from london if you've ever taken that railway line it's incredibly frustrating once you pass the tamar because brunel built the railway line to follow the coast exactly for kind of the value of the beauty of being right next to the sea mm. and it's gorgeous your train carriages get splashed with spray it's you know beautiful to do at sunset or in a storm but also every couple of years the train line just collapses which shouldn't be that surprising to us <laughs> but that double standard is is maybe similar mm. so at what point is this going to get 
really bad. I mean, like, the, 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 <laughs> I, to, to put it in, you know, layman's terms, at what point are we going to start panicking? Because it does feel at the moment we've just got, we have slightly more storms than we did. We have slightly more floods than we want. At what point are things going to get that really noticeably, undeniably bad? My instinctive answer is just to scream into the microphone, it's already really, really bad. <laughs> um, it's very frustrating. Like this year, for instance, the Arctic melt didn't quite top last year's record so it or 2012 maybe record so it's the second largest ice melt and that doesn't make a headline but it's still really really bad and actually if you don't start acting now there's going to be a point where every single year is the biggest melt but on a more direct answer to your question scientists were thinking it was going to rise by about a meter i think just due to arctic melt but they thought the antarctic was relatively stable they've now decided that it's not and apparently it's melting in kind of there's a steps almost of different ice levels that are buffering the main ice sheets together and they're eroding much more quickly than anyone ever thought they were so it could almost we could see double the amount of projected sea level rise but it's very hard in terms of like when is that going to happen these the prediction process is fascinatingly complex not only have you got general trends so you can see how much co2 is going up how much you can try and work out how much the earth is warming that's that's one massively complex thing in itself but then you've got the local weather systems of the arctic and how a certain storm at a certain month or period of a month kind of affects things so it's the scientists have a, have a tricky job well on that cheerful note there are though people whose job it is to kind of protect cities from this stuff and uh, i've been i've been talking to a couple of them so let's see how you stop a city from flooding this is a brooklyn bound a express train the next stop is dykeman street this is a 125th street bound a express train the next stop is 59th Street, Columbus Circle. I'm Arnaud Molinaar and um, the Chief Resilience Officer of the City of Rotterdam. I'm Christine Morris. I'm the Chief Resilience Officer for the City of Norfolk, Virginia. And I am Katarina Oskarsson, Deputy Resilience Officer, City of Norfolk. So we're in southeastern Virginia, right on the coast, uh, really at the tip of where the Atlantic Ocean meets the Chesapeake Bay. And so that makes us a pretty strategically important place as we are guard the mouth of the Chesapeake all the way up to Washington, D.C., which is why Naval Station Norfolk is here and why the Port of Virginia uh, is such an important asset to the state and to the East Coast. How, how old is the Naval Station? I mean, is it literally there to prevent the British invading in 1812 or something? No, it's celebrating its 100th birthday uh, oh, next wow. year. It's a big... Uh, it's a big celebration that we'll be doing here in the in the region to celebrate Naval Station Norfolk. Yeah, but it, there, it's been a port city since its founding, so there's always been you know sort of military here. It's a city that really uh, needs to be on the water, but unfortunately, it's also has the challenges of dealing with sea level rise and the resultant flooding that we're experiencing from that. We have always had flooding in Norfolk, but uh, as we've seen over the last couple of uh, years, that issue is becoming more frequent. And so we just need to find ways to deal with that. When, when you look at the country, uh, the, the, the Netherlands, you could say 60% of the country is vulnerable for flooding. And, 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 and I think uh, nearly half of, of the country is below sea level. And when you, when you zoom in into Rotterdam, so you could say the Netherlands is a delta, a delta country, and Rotterdam is a typical delta city. 
80% of the, of the urban area is below sea level, and that's, and that's what, 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 what we call polders. And, um, and this, this, this is all, um, it, it, it is existing land, but it has been uh, drained. But especially the river zone, where uh, also a lot of people live, but where the whole port is located, that's, that's uh, man-made. And especially the, 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 the newest part of the port, that's all uh, reclaimed land. And in our case, we also facing extreme rainfall and groundwater is, level is changing. So sometimes I, I tell people that the water is coming from all directions. Uh, and and doing nothing is not is is not not an option. <laughs> it's important to understand a little bit about the geography of Norfolk. When the city was founded 400 years ago, it really had a lot of open creeks and areas where uh, water really came together with the land. And so uh, those areas were filled in the 1800s, and they weren't generally good engineered fill. And so those areas are subsiding or sinking. And so what we're seeing is when the when it rains very hard and the water drains to those areas that it used to drain to and be in an open creek, now we see flooding in those areas. And as sea levels rise, our stormwater systems, when the tides are high, the water is actually coming in from the rivers into the stormwater tailpipes. And so there's nowhere for the precipitation stormwater to, to exit. And so times when the uh, tide is high and it rains, we flood in the low-lying areas. That's more frequent, and it's becoming more difficult as sea level rises. Whilst the, the tide height doesn't have to be quite as high for the flooding to occur. How often would this have happened, say, a generation ago, and how often is it happening now? We've seen some data that indicates that the, the frequency is definitely going up, and it depends on what areas of the city. Yeah. If I can just jump in, so some estimates, show that compared to 1960s, 1970s, hours of nuisance flooding have increased by more than 300%. What flood protections are in place at the moment? We, we have a huge system of uh, what we call primary uh, levees, and, and that's, that's uh, protecting the country and the city from, from the sea and from the, the, the rivers, the main rivers. And, 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 and we have our famous uh, flexible uh, storm surge barrier. Um, and, and if, if you Google on, on storm surge barrier Rotterdam, you will see the, the pictures. And it are two flexible arms, and each arm has the length of the Eiffel Tower. And, that, and that's uh, on purpose flexible, because we have a huge port, the largest port in Europe. And this also has, has to, to continue operating. But it is possible to close this when there is an extreme high tide, uh, etc., for 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 say, 24 hours. And and in the in the the country itself, we have a whole system of what we call secondary levees, more or less compartments in the in the in the country. So in the low-lying part of Holland, we have a whole system of of levees and compartments. How do you deal with this? What do you do to to make the city better able to cope with rising sea levels? We think about this as a, as a long-term journey for the city. Right now, what we talk about nuisance flooding. So in those times when it rains uh, hard and we have a high tide, basically we're having street flooding. And in some areas of the city, some of the water is coming up into people's backyards. We've got a couple of areas that have 
significant repetitive flooding, but most of the city is just dealing sort of, sort of with this transportation problem because the streets are uh, acting as a water management system for us right now. And we are taking a multi-pronged approach to how we deal with this. And our flooding problem is because the sea levels are rising and they're blocking our stormwater system. So the first thing we need to do is disconnect those two systems. We have to manage the uh, the edge conditions so that there's uh, no inundation coming over the top uh, at the edge of our cities. But we also have to make sure that there's room for the water to be stored when the tide's too high for it to exit the city. So that's the first strategy that we're taking. The second is that we're asking residents to what we call become little water managers. We need to hold water where it falls so that the precipitation runoff is not so great that it clogs our stormwater system. So what we're asking people to do is hold, absorb, and then slowly release the water so that uh, when the rain is coming heavily, we have some time to clear the system uh, for the system to operate when the tides go down. And we're doing that by asking them to, to employ strategies such as rain barrels and rain gardens and bioswales. And over time, we're looking to use permeable pavement and uh, other types of underwater or understreet storage, generally just to be able to hold as much water for as long as we possibly can so that as the tide recedes, we can then release it into the storm. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Water and we can manage the water more effectively. Is it basically a matter of diverting water into particular channels so it doesn't just end up in the street? Of course, we, we have one main river and, and, uh, and upstream there are, are also uh, possibilities to divert the water. But then still there is a, a chance of a combination of high river levels and high tides, for example, that there is, uh, say, once, once, once a year on an average, we already have some small-scale flooding, but that's, that's related to river and to sea. Uh, but we're also facing small-scale flooding because of extreme rainfall. And, and then you're talking about a lot of other additional measures in the city itself, in the urban area, like uh, green roofs and water squares and underground water storages and 
to 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 regenerate the sponge function of the city. Green facilities to literally absorb the water. Yeah, yeah. We now have uh, calculated that we have developed uh, 230,000 square meters of green roofs, and, uh, and 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 I have recalculated that, and it's uh, 35 soccer fields. As a layman, you kind of imagine that flood protection is going to be, you know, great big walls or something, increased barriers to stop uh, sea or river water from rising. But but I'm getting a sense from from conversations like this one that it is, is as much about kind of how you manage the water that comes down from the sky as anything else. How you kind of sort of slow down the passage of of rainwater so that it doesn't add to the problem. So I think it really depends on where you're situated and what your topography is like. So the first flooding that we're seeing as a result of sea level rise is this uh, increased precipitation issue. Over time, depending on how fast and how far the sea level rises. We will have to deal with edge conditions that can uh, deal with that. So, But there's a lot of uncertainty as to what that number is and what the timeline is. So what we're trying to do is to be strategic about the adaptability of our system. So the first problem to address is the flooding that we're getting from stormwater because that's the, that's the problem we're seeing right now. We also know that in places where we have storm events that push water into the city and a surge, we want to be able to protect against that as well. As sea levels rise, that threat becomes higher, and so it's more likely that we'll get more of them, and therefore we'll want to have more protection against them. That's, I think, where the coastal protections come in, the flood walls, the gates, the tide gates. That type of protection is really against the storm from the the ocean side. The stormwater management is really about handling the water that falls out of the sky. And sometimes things come together, right? You get a hurricane, you get a lot of rain, and you get the wind. So you've got to make sure your system is disconnected enough to handle both. We have a campaign to make the citizens aware that it's better not to to pave their gardens or or to depave their gardens, for example. We we because we also need uh, uh, the private areas to, to become a climate resilient city. And we are introducing urban farming on roofs to combine social resilience with climate resilience. We have introduced uh, a new uh, type of pavement that, that that's, it's, 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 it's nearly art, uh, but it can absorb uh, the, the, the rainwater. So they're all, all, all types of measures. This all sounds very complicated. I kind of admire your calmness about how I'm dealing with such a sort of critical piece of infrastructure here. The good news is we've got some time to figure this out. Uh, We have also got some time to hope for some really interesting innovation to help us think about how we manage uh, both aspects of the problem that we're going to be seeing over the years. Uh, And we think that it actually in, in some ways becomes an opportunity because, as I said, the city of Norfolk is always flooded. We are a water-based city and people live here because we love the water and we work on the water. And so how can we use this um, opportunity to reconfigure the city to manage these new problems to make the the city even more beautiful and uh, access to the water even better? Within a few weeks, we will open our, uh, I think it's our fourth water square. That's that's more or less uh, symbolic for our approach because... Most cities increase the capacity of the sewer system and, and build larger sewer pipes, but we, uh, we have made a choice to, and a policy to, to um, add a additional layer, literally, in the public space. And why? Because we want to build an attractive city 
uh, by uh, well redesigning the public space and 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 a and a water square is uh, a square which has um, a function for well say a basketball field or a theater but it's also uh, allowed uh, temporarily to overflow with the uh, stormwater so and that's a flexible solution it's made it may making it it's visible so it creates the awareness but it's also creating uh, and contributing to the social cohesion because of these, these additional functions how much would the sea level have to rise by before a city like norfolk is in is in real trouble you know, it really depends on your adaptive measures. I think that the city of Norfolk, uh, the, the curves that we're looking at right now, we feel we're uh, extremely viable, uh, well past 2100. You know, the uncertainty at that point is so great that it's really not even worth discussing at this point. But we have, you know, relatively high ground uh, that's not very close to the river. Uh, we believe adaptive architecture and uh, different ways of living uh, can even make areas that are close to the river right now viable into the future. So we're not really seeing it as uh, there's some point at which Norfolk is no longer a viable city. It's really about adaptation over time. And we're talking about, you know, 100, 150 years where, you know, I always say if you look at your city outside your window, it didn't look anything like this 150 years ago. It's unlikely to look anything like this in 150 years, and you will adapt to the conditions uh, as you go. How much would the sea level have to rise before Rotterdam is in serious trouble? Our protection level in the first place is very, very high. Um, but uh, of course, we, we have looked ahead and, and the prediction is that the sea level will rise somewhere between, I think, uh, uh, 50, 85 centimeters and, and, uh, and 120 centimeters. And, and this will cause uh, uh, an, increase, an increase of risk. Um, so um, we, we we have to to to, to strengthen uh, certain parts of the levees, and we also have to, for example, upgrade uh, the storm surge barrier. And are you working with other cities in any way? It's important to see this as a whole of community, whole of government effort. A lot of people reach out to Norfolk because we report a lot of nuisance flooding because of the conditions and the geography that we have. We're a little early to the party in the sea level rise discussion and the increased flooding, but we feel as though, you know, that's a, that's a false sense of security for other cities on the coast. We're all going to be meeting these challenges or seeing these challenges in the future, whether you're Boston or DC or Philadelphia or New York. I think we need a coordinated strategy in which we share best practices. We think about how we're going to innovate around living on the coast in the future and that we understand that it's going to take investment from uh, all manner of government. Just to round off, I'm going to round off on a very cheerful note, but can you give me a sense of what the worst case scenario is here? Of, of course, you, you, you also have heard about uh, scenarios that, that when Greenland ice will melt, etc., then, and then there probably will be a sea level rise of four or five meters yeah that's 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 then we then we have a, a different a different situation yeah. and, and that's that's not something that we already have figured out what i what i always tell to 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 when to delegations coming to rotterdam you need a vision and a strategy personally i think uh, a day in which you did not include climate adaptation is is a lost day <laughs> 
Why? Because every day when you are developing, well, a building or a new district, that will be there for 70 or 80 years. And if you did not have included from the beginning climate adaptation, then you have to repair things that, that will cost 10 times more. It, it's important to, to, to get this on the agenda without a disaster. That, that's, that's, I think, for most of the cities, the biggest challenge. It's difficult to convince politicians to invest in things that are necessary for the long term. And that's why, why it's, it's crucial that, that for, for example, within a few weeks, we, we are able to cut a ribbon because we are going to open the fourth water square. And that's visible. But, but, but if it was a, a new part of the sewer system, nobody would be interested. So for possibly a slightly uplifting end to the podcast, we have reached out to our listeners to ask how they think we can best act in cities to try and slow the impact of climate change. And we've had some obvious but urgent suggestions. We had a guy who just said, vote green, which is a, bit, it's a long-term plan, but it might work. How long have we got, India? <laughs> um, we have a lot of people who just say, take bikes and public transport and don't drive your car when you don't have to which seems obvious, but is something that I'm tailing off because I just I, I feel like these are the kinds of things that you bang on about all the time and then don't happen. In fact, I think it's probably worth reading our, our stories tweet out in full. He suggests bike strikes, bike strikes, bike strikes, bike strikes, bike strikes, bike... I'm going to stop because it does go on a bit. But, that's, <laughs> but you've, got, you've got the sense. I mean, there was a certain amount of trolling we got to this. So Tom Usher, from, who's a vice writer, as you'll be able to tell from the nature of the tweet, replies, we've burned all of the cars in a giant car bonfire, which is... <laughs> I mean, what would the carbon footprint of that car bonfire be? Because it would be quite difficult. You'd have to calculate the, the, the amount of saved petrol from the fact you burnt all these cars, but against that, you presumably got quite a lot of emissions. So, Yeah, Tom Usher, your idea is stupid. What you should have said is crush all of the cars in a giant car crusher. Try harder next time. Yeah, and then we could turn them into houses. <laughs> we do have someone who says, build more passive house homes. I'm not sure what they are, but the title's in German, so I'm going to presume they're very efficient and environmentally friendly. Okay, w one of the more sensible suggestions was road pricing, which comes up quite a lot. It's just There's a, a concept in economics called externalities, which is basically the people who bear the cost of something and not the people who actually sort of generate that cost. And, you know, if, if, if people had to pay for the congestion they were causing, then they'd create less congestion and therefore less emissions, which is a nice idea, but you try getting that past the general public at this point. And similarly, a lot of people, Paul Hindleton, Kevin Mousley, a few other people all mentioned public transport subsidies, which are one of the most obvious ways you can incentivise people to not take a car. Essie Lindstedt said, eat less meat. That's not city-specific, but that is that would sort out emissions. Yep. Is it 30% of the world's emissions are caused by them? It's some ridiculously high... I'm looking at India, who is now looking at me <laughs> blankly. But it's, it, it is a... I'm right in thinking it's a surprisingly large percentage of the world's emissions are caused by the meat industry, right? Yeah, but there's always a catch in that that people forget. And it's actually that when you grow crops, 
so you might grow those crops to either feed people or to feed cattle in the winter. Every time you grow crops and you harvest them and you turn over the soil, that exposes huge amounts of CO2 from the soil release as well. So it's uh, it's not just the animals. <laughs> it does sound just a lot like, you know, having people alive creates a lot of emissions. <laughs> yeah, nobody's yeah. written in and said have less babies, which would be one of my... Well, yeah. Yeah. definitely mass, what mass some people say. Would, yeah. yeah. We did get a couple of people. The problem is, we always do. Whenever we do this, we get people who turn up just to troll me. So we do have a couple of people suggesting a garden bridge would be a way of dealing with the nations, <laughs> which is not. But we we have a related answer, which is a really good idea. I'm going to check this out. Which is David writes and say that there's an idea of building bushes or ivy along dual carriageways and kind of between mm. roads and where people walk, which absorbs pollution and also looks a lot nicer and uses existing space. India, you're nodding. Well, I've always thought motorways are a great place for solar panels as well. Oh, no, they've, they've, they've actually tried that. It's difficult enough manufacturing solar panels in a way that doesn't cost a fortune, but like doing it in such a way that they're also strong enough to drive on. Mm. Um, is, is an extra layer of difficulty, I think. But this is something they're trying. There was there a is. fantastic Kickstarter on this, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. If you're listening, go on Google and type in hexagonal solar panel car park, and it should come up. Where a couple had managed to produce it, and were raising money to take out a patent and try and mass-produce this. Yeah, we reported on that. That was about 18 months ago, and it's gone a bit quiet, so... If you're listening, please hurry up with your solar paneled car park and save the world. Just to end on, we've got a rather nice one from uh, Robin Speed, who I believe is Barbara Speed's dad. So that's nice. Who says, charge duty on airline fuel. So They already charge duty on airline fuel. Don't undermine Barbara's dad. Nice <laughs> enough to write in. <laughs> there was a bit I wanted to... Basically, the church has a big conference this week on climate change, and for years they've been trying to kind of find the religious answer to climate change and what religions around the world should be doing on it and it's really fascinating because it exposes even within say the christian churches the different parts of the kind of ethical code that they pull out to justify it or to justify continuing burning fossil fuels you could have for instance some some groups say you know christianity is there to serve the poor fossil fuels are cheaper therefore we should keep burning them others say you know we have a duty to like save humanity and where who is your neighbor is it next door or is it in a, in a country on the other side of the world it's because it's something the pope tweets about mm, the pope going, really going to the other church <laughs> he's got that famous tweet you know our, our home the earth is increasingly becoming a ginormous pile of trash which is much memed but maybe less heated mm, exactly and you know these these are big networks across the world they do have roots directly into people's everyday lives so it's good that they're thinking about it and it's also i think useful for even scientists to try and think about in terms of just complementing the science with these broader ethical questions and really getting down to the knots of them i think that's actually what will engage people in the end and you know ask everyone to find what they really think about it I suppose the question is how quickly it's going to engage anyone under the circumstances because we are we are on a deadline here right true very much so in every sense <laughs> but fear again there's all kinds of psychological work that's now roughly um in agreement that you know don't don't panic anyone people don't respond to fear or they'd respond to fear if it's followed up immediately by evidence of here's how what, you can save your yeah. or evidence of what you were meant to be fearful of if there's a massive flood immediately after you've said there will be one people are like yes climate change is actually public opinion 
or interest and support for measures on climate change went up massively after the big flooding incidents in the UK. So it's very tightly correlated. But then in the interim, if you're if you continue to hammer out a fear message people switch off and they can actually start to feel become more skeptic they're wondering where you're saying there's going to be a big flood and there wasn't so (laughs) or you take one of our colleagues approach which is to go climate change is definitely happening anyway and i can't do anything so i'm gonna have some tuna (laughs) i'm not i'm not gonna rat him out i'll tell you later when the mic's off it's Stephen, right it's Stephen. yeah (laughs) (laughs) there is also apparently an optimism bias that helps people think that essentially it's all going to be all right and we shouldn't worry too much but then Stephen doesn't seem to he often seems to predict bad things so I'm not sure if he suffers from that. <laughs> Stephen does not have optimism bias it's only the optimism bias that's keeping me going and on that note <laughs> You've been listening to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. It was presented by John Elledge and Stephanie Boland and produced by Royfield Brown. You can contact all three of us on Twitter where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. Our theme music was Waves by CORTR. You also heard We Are One by Vixento. All music in the show was licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast, on iTunes or in the podcatcher of your choice. You can also find two more shows by our excellent colleagues, Seriously and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps and geography you could ever possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. And since you've listened this far, leave us a nice review on iTunes, eh? Go on, we love you for it. Thanks for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.